This podcast is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform for entrepreneurs to stand out and succeed online. And I know this personally as I use Squarespace for my website and find it so easy to use with plenty of great templates to choose from to make it look super engaging and professional, even for a technophobe like me. And if you need any more encouragement, here are some of the amazing things Squarespace offer. You can start a completely personalised website with the new guided design system, Squarespace Blueprint AI. You can also sell your products and services with an online store. From hand-knitted decorations to digital content or services, Squarespace has the tools you need to start selling online. Squarespace supports entrepreneurship by helping you to easily manage your clients and invoices in one streamlined workflow. Head to squarespace.com forward slash fail 10. That's fail 1010 for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use offer code fail 10 to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Hello and welcome to How to Fail with Elizabeth Day, the podcast that celebrates the things that haven't gone right. This is a podcast about learning from our mistakes and understanding that why we fail ultimately makes us stronger. Because learning how to fail in life actually means learning how to succeed better. I'm your host, author and journalist Elizabeth Day, and every week I'll be asking a new interviewee what they've learned from failure. Andy Oliver is a straightforward force for good in a complicated world. A gifted television presenter, she's also a warm and enthusiastic human who loves to share her passions with other people. Although she's always been drawn to cooking, she put on her first dinner party at the age of 12, Andy actually started out as a singer in a band with her best friend, Nena Cherry, before making the move into broadcasting. She is now the beloved host of Great British Menu on the BBC and presents the Sky Arts Book Club alongside <laughs> little old me. Um, but as well as this packed filming and reading schedule, she also somehow finds the time to run her much-loved restaurant, Andy's with Dadley Kitchen in Hackney, East London. Her chocolate-curried goat apparently took 25 years to perfect. She is one of the hardest workers in the business, a woman's woman to her very core, and someone whose kindness and humour I've come to value more than I can put into words. Cooking, music, acting, for me, they all come from the same place, she says. You have to do it with your soul. Andy Oliver, my darling soul sister, (laughs) how are you? I'm all right, apart from this ridiculous cough, but I'm good, you know, Elizabeth. I've had quite the year. I've had a really interesting year where I am expanding into new... I've started writing. I know. I'm excited about it. Can we talk about that openly now? Yeah, we can talk about it openly. um, Yeah, I haven't announced it yet, but we can talk about it. I don't care. Um, (laughs) It's not out for a couple of months. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it's not out till 2023, probably, beginning of 2023, but I've started writing. It's like plugging myself back into a sort of old part of myself that's kind of been a little dormant, I think. It's a bit like why I love doing the book show with you, actually. And that is that words 
sustained me when I was a quite an unhappy teenager, you know, language, literature, all of those things saved my life, really. So it feels like a really natural thing for me to start writing. And it's given me an interesting perspective on this year because it's a cookbook, but I'm also writing kind of little thought essay pieces. So I'm trying to work out what I think about stuff in a way that I could communicate it clearly with other people, you know. It's almost like doing therapy on yourself writing, I sometimes think. Yes. Yes, and I've had so much therapy. (laughs) Me too. I love therapy. I'm the biggest, like, therapy evangelist in the world. I also think, you know, there's so much stigma around it for so many people. But actually, it's one of the oldest things in the world. You know, tribally, there's the keeper of the secrets, there's the elders, the wise ones. All of those people, they're just shrinks. Really, do you know what I mean? It's where a place that people can go where there's no other agenda, where you can work out what you mean, how you need to say it, and how you need to pass through things that are difficult in your life. And if I hadn't had therapy, I don't know where I'd be right now, or if I'd be, to be honest with you. I just want to acknowledge something you said there about how words saved your life as a teenager. Mm. In what way? What were you going through then? I was in Suffolk for a start, which was, and it was the 70s. So it was like 70, you know, five, 76 or something when I was in my early teens. And it, it was a really tough place to be for a young black girl because I was it. There was only me in the whole town, you know. So at our school, there was me, there was my brother, and then there were two other boys, two mixed race boys. And that was it in the whole of this massive school in the middle of Suffolk in Bury St Edmunds. And it, it was a really tricky place to grow up. It was a really tricky arena to navigate because it was really racist, overtly, you know, not sort of even coded, codified anything. It was like this that every single day was like running a gauntlet going to school was really, really tough. And I'd have to take a deep breath and get out the door and manage to wend my way through it, really. And I never, weirdly, I never told my mother or never told my father, I never told anybody about what was happening at school. And I've only really realised that quite recently. And I think, in a way, I kind of wanted to protect them from the fact that I was so desperately unhappy because I I think a part of you, if you're from a an immigrant family, I think your parents leave something to come to a place to give you a better life. They want their children, they want their family to have opportunities that they don't perceive there to be in the place that they come from. And I think I felt a responsibility to try to be happy. And I felt guilty for being so desperately unhappy and not knowing how to deal with this thing this Mm. this beast and it was this beast that I felt like I had to it's like dealing with Cerberus on a daily basis do you know what I mean that's kind of what it felt like for me so books for me were my refuge I would disappear into a book and my mother took me to the library every week when I was a kid and I take out four or five books and just smash through them throughout the week books reminded me or helped me to understand that there were other ways that people lived life that there were other things happening in other parts of the world and this was not the only opportunity that I had for a life experience that my life could change that my life could be other things that there were different places with people thinking bigger thoughts and having bigger hearts and bigger souls and bigger minds you know and that's what I really needed to know and needed to be reminded of on a daily basis you know that's so beautifully put and so profound and you and I talk about books a lot yes and I wonder if you think 
books are where you go to see yourself, to find yourself, but also, as you say, to imagine difference. And those things are connected. Yes, no, absolutely. Because I think I always felt difference. And like I was the difference. So often a protagonist, particularly in books I was reading when I was younger, I guess, oh no, just still now or two, the protagonist is the difference person. And they become the hero or the heroine of that situation. So seeing the difference as a good thing and not necessarily a burden or a difficult position to be in gave me hope and gave me light and still does, I think. It gives you agency. Mm. And the thing that's something that's so awful and insidious about bigotry of any kind, racism or whatever it's about, is that it makes you feel you have no agency. You don't feel you have any power in your life. And for me, what happened really mainly is I turned it in on myself. I absorbed all of that stuff, all of that stuff about being the wrong colour, the wrong shape, the wrong everything. And they became a sort of dark internal truth that I carried around with me like extra luggage for years and probably still do to a certain extent. Oh, my darling, there's so much to unpack there. And (laughs) I'm so glad we've got deep so quickly. I want to talk about something that's going to sound trivial, but actually is also deep, which is hair. Because I I read somewhere during the course preparing for this that one of the most unconscionable episodes of racism in your youth was a teacher making you stand at the front of a class. Do you mind? No, I will tell you the story because it's an important story to tell. And when I tell it now, it still makes me want to cry, Elizabeth. It was so awful. It was my German teacher. And I had had my mother put my hair in cane rows. I think it must have been around the time of Odyssey, you know, that band, Odyssey, because it was like a lot of beads were happening. And I was like, oh my God, I want beads in my hair. I was so excited. So she did my hair up into these cane rows, up into the top, had a little bun, and then I had a little fringe of tiny little silver beads. And I felt amazing like amazing and I'd ne- I never felt amazing like that and I was like oh my god I've finally done it I look pretty I feel really fantastic and I got to my German class first class of the day and my teacher looked at me and he went oh my god and made me stand at the front of the class and for the first I mean it felt like forever I don't know how long it went on for because you know like a minute in a child's mind is forever anyway and the first part of the lesson was getting the other children to humiliate me in German finding ways to say that I looked stupid or ridiculous or you know daft and I just stood there with tears running down my face and then eventually they ran out of things to say and he told me to go to my seat and that was how the German class started. And that was an adult man. And I must have been about 12. I was a kid. I was a little kid. You know, I talk to you about that now and my stomach gets knotted up. Because yeah. those things don't ever really leave you properly. They stay with you in a way that is really hard to describe to people. I had a moment the other day where, you know, there was all that stuff about the Enid Blyton plaque. Yes. And she did that book of the three little golly or whatever it was called and in it they were called golly wally and And I remembered being at school in Cyprus we'll get to that I'm sure but I had a teacher there that used to call me you people Miss Scottford she was called she used to call me you people and she read this book out 
And I just remember sitting there rigid with fear, just rigid with fear, absolutely terrified, scared to go into the playground because I thought I was going to get bullied, scared to move because I thought she might say something. You know, and it did scar me for life. And I mentioned something about it on the beloved playground that is Twitter. It's a great place for nuance. Great place for nuance, Twitter. Great place for nuance. I don't know what possessed me, but I just thought I should say something about it. So I said something about it and I just said, well, I also loved the Famous Five. I loved the Famous Five. I wanted to be in the Famous Five quite badly. So I do understand that nascent love for Enid Blyton and all of those books. And I said, but it's not the only thing she left me with. Also, there was this horrible experience and it scarred me for life and it was really racist and horrible. So no one's trying to upset your apples cart, but you have to understand that not all the apples tasted the same for all the people. And that's all I said. Somebody took that and put it in one of those red top newspapers and put the words scarred for life in inverted commas and racist in inverted commas and literally just lifted the piece and put the thing in. And there were all these people going, stupid woman, what's the matter with them? And I got so upset by it and I was really shocked at how upset I got by it. And then I realised the thing that upset me the most wasn't people saying no shit, it was the fact that they put the scarred for life in inverted commas. Yeah. Because I just like, oh my God, and you still don't believe me. It's such a denial of truth. And actually, anyone who's listening to this podcast who doesn't understand the pain caused by insidious racism that is often wrongly labelled casual, because for me, there's no such thing. there's no such thing. Yeah, I want those people to remember you standing at the front of your German class, age 12, being horrendously bullied for your difference. I'm so sorry for the pain that you carry. I really am. I'm so sorry. And people get very defensive about their heritage. And, you know, a good friend of mine, Satnam Sangira, wrote a book called Empire Land. Love him. I mean, we love him. And it's amazing. And it's about honouring our past by fully examining it for good and for bad. Yes, and if you do that, if you look at the dark, only then can we move into the light. Nobody wants to hold on to the dark. I certainly don't want to walk around thinking about being 12 years old, being bullied by my German teacher the whole time. But until we can talk about things freely, yes, then we can't really fully let them go and move into the future together, which is what we want, really. What I want, it's what you want, it's what all the people in my family want, all the people around me. You know, the fact that they tried to turn multiculturalism into a dirty word and tell us it's a failed experiment really pisses me off, Elizabeth. I'm like, yeah. whatever, come round my house. I'll show you. I'll show you, bitches. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> and also the idea, the wrong idea that multiculturalism is some kind of modern political concept. We've been multicultural since time immemorial. Babes. Anyway, we're getting off track. I just want to bring it back to hair because yes. you are, and I know that you don't, realize this about yourself but you are a phenomenally beautiful woman and one of the only people I know who can carry off not having (laughs) hair and I and it's just so it like adds to your beauty to do like how do you feel about hair now given that it was part of one of the most painful memories of your youth do you think that that then carried through to how you think about it today it's quite interesting me and hair because my hair's very weak and to get it nice or how I want it to be to plait it and do things, it actually takes loads of work. And I'm not a very high maintenance 
human in that way. Like I do my makeup and all that stuff for work, but the rest of the time I barely wear makeup. I'm not very... So it takes hours to get it done. And I just got really fed up with being in this trap for this cycle with the hair. So I just shaved it off, basically. I got really fed up a bit. Shaved it off. I just had enough. But I am thinking about growing it back. Oh, really? Okay, wait, what age were you when you shaved it off? I've shaved it off a couple of times in my life. The first time I shaved it off, I was probably about 19 or 20. And I was with Nana and we were about to do a gig and I was moaning about my hair and she went, oh, for God's sake, either shave it off or shut up. So I went, shave it off. And she went, really? I was like, yeah, let's just shave it off. She went to the corner and bought a Bic razor from Boots. Literally, we soaked up my head, just shaved it off and then put a head tie on. Didn't even tell the band. And then went on stage and my head tie fell off. I was completely (laughs) bald. And all the guys were like, oh my God, where's your hair? (laughs) And then I was bald for quite a long time. Then I grew it back and then I had locks. And, you know, I've gone through loads of different phases with it. But interestingly... Again, it's linked to all this other much deeper stuff. Mm. My hair, would I could never straighten it, which I wanted to do because it just would melt it. I could only ever have it in like Afro styles, like a plaited and things like that. And when I was younger, I didn't want my hair to look like that. I wanted it to look like white girl's hair and I could never get it to look like white girl's hair. So that used to upset me. And then all the black girls I knew who had like all this like really thick, loads of amazing hair could straighten it and do all these mad things with it and put all these crazy styles. And I could never do that either. So I always felt like I was straddling this weird hair world of not having the right kind of anything. So, I, you know, I've just gone with none. But you're thinking of growing it back out and that must be quite symbolic. Is it symbolic of self-knowledge? Uh, possibly. I think I'm, I'm also a bit bored. I do like having a bald head, but I'm sort of, I want to be able to change it and do lots of different things. It is symbolic of self-knowledge and I think of reclamation of self a bit as well. You know, and there's something very powerful about taking, it's this agency thing again, taking the power in your life as and where and when you need it. And hair is very symbolic of lots of of female sexuality and, well, all sexuality, I suppose, and power and energy. And I feel like I want some again. Can you see why Andy is just one of my dearest friends? Like I get to have conversations with you like this. Backstage all the time. And you are just, oh, it's so wise, but also so accessible at the same time. It's like quite a rare combination. (laughs) I don't feel very wise. I don't feel very wise. No, you're so wise. Let's get on to your failures because otherwise we'll just natter for an hour. Quite hard to pick three, by the way. (laughs) It's so interesting how many women say that and how few men say that. Yes. Oh, really? How interesting. (laughs) I was like, oh God, where do you want me to start? We're living in an era of information overload. We've more knowledge than ever before, but what do we do with it all? Notion is a place where any team can write, plan, organise and rediscover the joy of play. It's a workspace designed not just for making progress, but for getting inspired. Notion is the AI-powered workspace where the everyday takes care of itself. Meetings have summaries, 
docs find themselves, and every question has an answer because Notion AI turns knowledge into action. And I know that myself because I once asked it to write an introduction for a How to Fail episode. And I have to say, it was so helpful and so convincing. Try Notion for free when you go to notion.com forward slash fail. That's all lowercase letters, notion.com forward slash fail and start turning ideas into action. And when you use our link, you're supporting our show. Notion.com forward slash fail. I'm Rachel Martin. After hosting Morning Edition for years, I know that the news can wear you down. So we made a new podcast called Wildcard, where a special deck of cards and a whole bunch of fascinating guests help us sort out what makes life meaningful. It's part game show, part existential deep dive, and it is seriously fun. Join me on Wildcard, wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR. Where did I start? You start with your failure to crack the music industry on your uh, own. Yes. So you were in a band called Rip, Rig and Panic. Yes. With Nana Cherry. And yes. your brother, Sean. Yes. And I'm very interested in, as to why you perceive this time in your life as a failure. Oh, no, not that. So after that. Oh, okay. After that. After <laughs> that bit band, was a roaring success. Yeah, that was great. That was all really good. And then Rip Ring and Panic broke up and we all sort of went our separate ways. So we didn't, you know, obviously we were still hanging out together and stuff. And I started having my band on my own and I played with lots of different people and had loads of different things. But I could never get signed as a solo artist and that was really soul destroying I'd do these amazing gigs at like Ronnie Scott's or down at heaven or whatever and it'd be packed it'd be amazing yeah. and then we'd go and do demos and they'd be really great and everybody in the studio would be really excited and then EMI or Sony or whoever would go oh, that's not really what we're looking for at the moment I think there's something very soul destroying isn't there as a creative person as an artist because if you do it right you put your heart into it and it's a little piece of yourself or a large piece of yourself depending on, on what it is and so if you're sending that out to people and you're just hitting walls again and again and again it's just a bit well it's more than a little soul destroying I think I got quite depressed after a couple of years of that and I was kind of floating around not really knowing what I was doing with myself it was a tricky time because that's when my brother died as well was sort of a couple of years into that and then Sean died very suddenly he had sickle cell anemia he was my big brother. He was 18 months older than me. I mean, we used to fight all the time because we were 18 months apart, but we were proper sibling close. You know, he was producing a lot of the music that I was writing and all of that stuff. And then he, out of the blue, died. He was like 27, going to be 28 when he died. And we always knew that he would die. His life expectancy was 30. Why? Because of sickle cell anemia. So he was born with that? Or... Yes, it's, oh, yes. okay. And I'm a carrier, And he was a sufferer. And it basically means that the blood cells in your body at certain points, they sickle. So instead of being amoebic shaped, they form like a sickle shape and they get locked in different parts of your body. So your joints, it's incredibly painful. Your joints hurt your head and he had a big attack in his head and it killed him basically. Andy, I'm so sorry. Yeah, it was was a really tough time, obviously. I was like 25 years old and I just was lost. I was lost, the music hadn't worked out for me on my own. I suddenly lost my brother and I just was 
kind of wandering around in a state of flux and I didn't really know what to do with myself. And then I discovered, this was at the height of the AIDS crisis as well, and then I discovered the London Lighthouse, which was a HIV AIDS hospice that was off of Labrick Grove. And I started volunteering there every Friday. And I really was, and nobody around me really knew that I was still depressed. It was one of those weird things where when somebody dies, people, they do their best. They're sort of supportive for a month or two, and then they go back and get on with their lives, which is normal. It's what they're meant to do. They're not meant to come, you know, there's no amount of support and help that can get you through. There's some things you have to walk alone, and that is one of those things. Your road through grief is a lonely road, and I think anybody who's lost anyone knows this, you know. And so I didn't really know what to do. I just was really lost. And then I found the London Lighthouse and I started working there every Friday. And it gave me back my life. It was the most extraordinary thing because I met all these people who were faced with their own mortality every day. Young people, young people who were suffering with AIDS, HIV positive, and also who had full-blown AIDS too, who were getting up every day. There were mothers who had little babies. It was Women's Day that I used to go on. Mothers with little babies who was, didn't know what was going to happen to their children when they passed away. They knew they had like a year left to live. Or And finding this courage in these incredible people who were faced with their own mortality gave me back the reins to my own life. It was like helping support other people brought me back into my own body. It was quite a profound, accidental path that I took. I didn't expect it to happen. And then through doing that, we used to sing a little bit on a Friday as well. And I mean, it was just an extraordinary time for me, I think. And I, again, re-found a lot of myself. And that's also how I started broadcasting, weirdly, because somebody at London Lighthouse said to me, that worked at GLR and they said do you want to do a radio show and I went all right <laughs> literally like that they said oh we're looking for someone to do a show on a Sunday or something and I just went along met the head of the station and she said do you want to start on Sunday and I went okay and I had no idea what I was doing and I went in and they sort of showed me how to drive a radio desk and I did a radio show that's how I became a broadcaster really so it's a weird story wasn't it I mean, no, it was a really, really stunning story about what it is to be human at the extremes. And you've already made me cry twice this episode. So no, don't apologise because when you cry and connect with something like that, that's what it is to be human. Yes. And talking to you, I always feel is like talking to truth. Like there's just no side to you. You talk as you see the world And that's such a beautiful quality in anyone and particularly a broadcaster. And I imagine you had to grow up really quickly when you were 25. Yes, I did. Because confronting that level of grief is something you don't normally experience until later in life. It was a real shocker. You know, it's like it doesn't matter if somebody tells you about life expectancy because you don't really understand that kind of stuff when you're that young. You know, you don't really understand loss and what it might mean and what it's going to feel like, you know. And I do feel that every painful, terrible thing one manages to pass through is if you survive, it gives you another building block to making you into a stronger person. Yeah. 
or a clearer person. I'm not sure I'm a, a massive advocate of being a strong person, particularly. You know, that kind of language, I think, is a bit dangerous because that means that then if somebody isn't managing to cope, that means they're weak. Is it? No. Do you know what I mean? It's like, I feel like setting someone up as a strong person sets up a whole group of other people for being weak people, yes. or it sets up a whole group of other people for not doing it right. You know, when people talk about winning or losing the fight against cancer, it's not like that. You know, you either manage to survive or you don't. It's not because you fought the fight well, Yes. is it? So, you know, yes. it's like, so I shy away from that kind of language, but I do feel that survival gives you insight. And I, and I feel that that insight helps you with clarity. And clarity means that you can pass through the world with more ease and with more grace. And more instinct. Because before we started this podcast, you were saying that you're not feeling that well. You've got a bit of a cough. And I was like, oh, my gosh, you shouldn't be doing this. You're like, no, I'm going to do it because no one's died, have they? That's my metric. And I know you meant it and we were laughing about it. But actually, that carries such weight given what you've just Mm. said to me. Mm. And I do think that. The other thing I would say to people is that we're not down the gulag. Do you know what I mean? People are always like, oh, this is so hard. I'm so tough. I'm like, babe, you're not down the gulag. We're making a TV show. Get a grip. Do you know what I mean? Seriously, it was a long day's filming, but, you know, they brought us lunch and we had tea (laughs) and we've got a door and there's a roof and there's windows and people are quite nice to us, really. Do you know what I mean? But we need to get a perspective on things. I think that you can lose perspective very easily in life. And I do try to maintain some kind of perspective, even when I'm completely exhausted and knackered. I just remind myself how lucky I am. And gratitude plays a really big part in my ability to be happy and to enjoy my life you know enjoy the day enjoy the day even when it's yesterday was literally my most hated kind of weather and I, I, I hate being cold right I'm really shit at being cold when people are talking to me when I'm cold I actually can't hear the words they're saying because all I'm thinking is I'm cold I'm cold I'm cold is it really I mean it's to the point of some sort of I might need some kind of hypnotherapy to deal with how much I hate being cold. It's ridiculous. But yesterday it was like raining sideways and then it was hail and then it was like, and I just was like, and I thought, oh, shut up. The driver's just appeared for you. They're taking you straight home to your house. You've got your lovely partner at home. Your daughter's coming around with a dog. Shut up, get a grip. So, you know, Mm -hmm. gratitude. Shout out to your daughter, Makita Oliver, who... I loved you love. even before I met her. And I've, na- I've now only actually met her in the flesh once, but we are essentially, I mean, we're all part of the same family, aren't we? we Let's totally be honest, we're basically are. sisters. <laughs> yeah, what did I, I, I texted you yesterday and said, we are kindred. We are. And we are kindred. Somebody said to me, oh, you're really lucky. You've got such good friends. I was like, it's not luck. When I meet people that I love, I hold on to them. Yeah. Not in a basement or anything. It's not... <laughs> I don't, I don't tie them up. I just try to keep them close. Is what I mean. I'd be honoured to be trapped in your basement as long as you fed me chocolate curried goats. Oh, darling. Um, let's go back to the failure to crack the music industry, though. Yes. Because at the time that all of that was going on for you, I'm imagining yeah. that Nena Cherry, your best friend, was, was that the start of her... Yeah. How hard was that? Well, I mean, it was double layered that because I could not be prouder of Nana and more in awe of her talent. And she also taught me so much. Just being Nana's friend taught me freedom. She taught me to unfurl my spirit. 
She really, really did. Nana comes from this extraordinary background, like hippie, beautiful. Her dad was a jazz trumpet player. Her mother was this exceptional artist, Moki. Oh my God, her mother was an amazing woman. Her mum and dad themselves taught me so much. And I met them when I was like 18 or something. And I just was like, wow, these people are incredible. You know, I'd come from Suffolk and I was suddenly in Sweden in the countryside with this incredible jazz player and this amazing artist and Nana. And, and she just introduced me to a world of liberation of the spirit you know and we met each other and we just fell in love with each other you know we were like because she grew up in the middle of the countryside in Sweden I grew up in the middle of the countryside in Suffolk oddly quite a lot of similarities and she was the yeah. only black girl there and I was the only black girl there so we met each other and we just went jabber 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 and within half an hour we decided we were going to sing together and be on the road together and everybody thought we were mad a month later, we were on the road together and singing together. So nerd to them. So I love her with such respect and, again, gratitude and with all my heart and soul. So I've never resented her success, but I always wanted some too in the same area, if you yeah. see what I mean. But I never look at Nana and go, oh, well, that's not fair, because she's so brilliant. You know, you can't deny Nana's incredible beauty and incredible talent and her ability. As a performer, it's like a masterclass. She has the audience in the palm of her hand and she literally, it's a love affair that they have with her and she has with them. And so much I know about being a performer, I learned from her. It was a sort of weird duality because I was very frustrated, but also really proud. Mm. And we would move in and out of each other's worlds because it was our world was always the same world. Have you ever fallen out? No. We started having an argument once and we were DJing and she said something to me and I said something back and then we looked around and we realised that everybody around us was like, <gasps> they're having a fight and we went, shh, don't do it. <laughs> And we, and we just didn't do it. Everybody got really excited because they just, you know, I think they were like jealous of our love affair. It's like, she's one of my biggest love affairs that's, you know, completely non-sexual, but absolutely yeah. passionate. I feel exactly the same about my best friend, Emma. Yeah, and it's the greatest so, love of my life, you know? Yeah, and the most consistent for so many yes. of us, I think. She's always been there. We have always been there. We've been there through each other's losses, each other's joys, each other's successes, each other's fear, each other's real dark spaces, and each other's absolute shafts of beaming light as well. And we're always there for each other and always will be. Well, I'm actually secretly quite grateful that you didn't make it as a solo artist in the music industry because <laughs> it means that you are the broadcaster that is essentially you're like our national treasure now and <laughs> I get I get to work with you and I would never have got to work with you because my singing voice is absolutely appalling <laughs> so so your failure is my success so that's a good thing that we can so take from that one. one we'll yeah. take that from that we'll take that from that and I think you know the music industry at the time was a very I mean, it's still quite a tricky place anyway, but, you know, being a dark-skinned black woman, you know, with quite a bit of batty on her and all of the rest of it, that was not a place that I was going to navigate easily in this country at that time. It just was never going to happen, I don't think. And that's just a fact. Do you think colorism is an issue that is under-acknowledged, particularly in the media industry right now? Yeah. Yeah. Massively, massively. I think people have started dealing with it, started talking about it. I mean, when I see dark-skinned black girls in advertising campaigns and I see dark-skinned black girls walking the... I need to walking the plank. What is it called? Catwalk. In, in models. Catwalk. 
<laughs> they may as well be walking the flag as well. Yeah. Like, so, well, that's it. That's a whole other radio show. <laughs> walking the catwalk. But I just think, God, when I was a kid, if I could have just seen one of those girls, just one, it would have made me feel like there was a place for me in the world. I just felt there was no place for me in the world. And to be perfectly honest, when I look back at that time in the music industry and not like really cranking through, I wasn't really ready. I didn't really have the requisite confidence in myself or the requisite resilience, really, to deal with it. And I think that people can smell that on you. That well, it's not weak because I again shy away from that word, but the vulnerability. Yeah. And I think I was a mess of vulnerability and insecurity then. So there were all these other accompanying factors like colorism and like body fascism and all of that stuff. But also within that and right alongside that, I wasn't really ready, Elizabeth. Yeah. And that's something I only acknowledged in the last couple of years. I'm like, when I look back at it and, I'm, and I know what success feels like now doing the things I'm doing, if this stuff had happened to me when I was much younger, there's no way I would have been able to deal with it. Not in a million years. Well, talking about how you feel as though you didn't quite fit in, and I put that in quotation marks, brings us Mm -hmm. on to your second failure, which is your failure to stop berating yourself for not being in a much slimmer body. Yes. That's my saddest failure, really, I think. And it still makes me really sad. And I still do it to myself on a daily basis. Yesterday, I was in the edit for Great British Menu, and I was watching, and every single shot, I'm like, how how do I look? How do I look? How do I look? And it's just exhausting. It's a very tiring thing. I mean, you know this about me, Elizabeth. I had a very serious eating disorder. After my brother died, it got really bad. I ate compulsively in the dark, like a junkie, like a drug addict. That's how it affected my life. It ravaged my body. I got huge. I was like twice the size that I am now, if not bigger. My friend calls it the existential hunger mm. because it's not about actual physical body hunger. It's like you're trying to fill a hole in your soul and that's never going to get filled. And it's eating on sadness. It's terrible because you just feel sick all the time, but you can't stop. And I didn't really understand that it was a a disorder. I just thought I was disgusting. I was like, oh, and, and on top of that, my brother's dead and I'm also disgusting. So that went on for a good couple of years and I was desperately, I mean, desperately unhappy. Nobody around knew what was going on because I used to do it secretly, you know? And then I met a girl who had just come out of treatment because she was a heroin addict and she'd come out of treatment and she was a friend of my sister-in-law and she was talking to me about it and I said, God, because everything she said sounded so familiar, but I wasn't a drug addict, you know? And I was just like, Sister is so weird. Everything she's talking about, I just, I know it. I recognise it. I just said to her, I wish there was somewhere I could go to that to help me with food, like really quietly. And she said, there is. And I said, what? She said, no, it's an eating disorder. I'd never really heard of an eating disorder properly. It wasn't as openly spoken about as it is now. I'd heard of anorexia. And that was all I'd heard of. Believe me, vaguely, and I certainly didn't know that compulsive eating was also a part of the eating disorder spectrum. She said, go and see this doctor. So he's a man called Dr. Robert Lefevre. And I went to see him and he said, oh, you're definitely really ill. And he ran this amazing place called Promise in the countryside. He sort of took one look at me. I was there for about 10 minutes and he said, okay, okay, okay. You really need my help. 
because I sort of walked in and burst into tears and I could barely talk and I was trying to tell him what was going on. And I, I mean, the fact that I'd found an arena where I could even talk about it at all was extraordinary to me. I didn't know. I didn't know it was a thing. I was like, oh my God, there are people who will listen to this stuff that's going on in my head. So I explained to him what was going on and he sent me back to the NHS and they said, well, you're not anorexic, so we can't afford to pay for it. So I went back to him and I said, I'm sorry, I won't be able to go. And he said, you can come for free. And this place was about eight grand a week. And he let me go for eight weeks, I think it was. And he saved my life. Wow. He definitely, definitely saved my life because it was dark. I was in a really dark place and I didn't know how to stop. And I would have either died because I would have given myself some sort of heart attack or I would have done harm to myself, I think, because it was just getting darker and darker and darker and I didn't know what to do and I just was trapped and I didn't know how to find the words to talk about it. So between Sarah and Dr. Lefebvre, they literally saved my life. And that was the first place I had any therapy. And I started to talk about everything and find a vocabulary and a language whereby I could express what was happening for me, to me, and in the past, the stuff that I'd internalised. And it changed everything, changed everything, the trajectory of my life completely. Andy, I love you so much for sharing that. Thank you. Mm. It's so powerful to hear its power that you have come through that and I know it's something that never entirely leaves you no how do you live with it now I have therapy every week for a start (laughs) that's my happy place I have very amazing therapist and I'm very careful you know I was talking to somebody they said it's interesting that you've chosen a field in which you have to eat (laughs) for a living but you see the thing is Food has been this dark, painful thing, but it's also been my creativity and my joy, like cooking for people and making recipes and writing things. You know, the fragrance of spices is like the greatest perfume to me. Cooking a meal, making a soup, doing, you know, I've got soups on the back pan right now. It's how I soothe my soul, but it's also been the way that I cause myself pain and hurt. So what I've managed to do is compartmentalise it, I think, and take the joy and the creativity and the truth in it, the truth in bringing together these ingredients to make something beautiful and make sure it's something that nurtures me and not something that hurts me. Mm. And I think that that in itself, being able to take it and take it back to that place has been such a healing thing for me, oddly. You'd think it would be the other way around, that it would be a, a place of danger for me, but actually it feels like a place of safety and a place of real beauty. And that's how you can do the Great British Menu then, because it comes from that place. Yeah, I think that sharing food with other human beings, food and music are the two greatest loves of my life. And they're the oldest human way of communicating with each other. I call it, I actually have a name for it, I call it breaking bread and the drum, right? Because that's what we did at the very beginning. You know, people learned to make bread and shared it with each other. And at the same time, they were drumming to communicate with each other. It's the basic foundation of human communication that's what I think cooking is and that's what I think music is and for me the being good when I was on stage came from the same place as being good when I'm in the kitchen it comes from a place of absolute deep emotional 
need to communicate with my fellow human beings. I was about to say that it's an act of communion and maybe that's yes. the key difference that when you were doing it to harm yourself it yes. was a solitary it was yeah. about isolation it was the yeah. shameful secret that you kept to yourself yeah. whereas any time you share food and you share your love of it that's a way of reclaiming it yes it's reclamation it also has the opposite effect so it opens you up yes and it speaks of your deepest dearest love And when it's dysfunctional, it closes you down and hides you. But when you share it, it becomes this thing of beauty that uplifts everybody around you, as well as yourself. I think a lot of women particularly, and a lot of marginalised people more generally, struggle with the idea of claiming space Mm -hmm. on a deep subconscious level. Mm -hmm. We've been fed this idea that in order to be acceptable, we need to shrink ourselves. We need to shrink ourselves as much as physically possible. Yes. Do you think that part of that failure, as you perceive it, to Mm. stop berating yourself for not being in a much slimmer body, comes from that, like a fear of taking up the space? Do you know, it's such an interesting thing to talk about this because I just think people don't really talk about internalised racism. And one of the things that goes hand in hand with internalised racism is a type of dysmorphia, a kind of physical dysmorphia, so that you actually... Well, this is what happened for me, and I'm sure, as with anything, it's completely different for each person. I mean, I look at pictures of myself when I was a teenager, when I was in Ripwigan Panic, when we were young. I watched a video of myself the other day, and I'm wearing a sort of skirt that's about two inches big and a tiny little bra, and I'm leaping around, and I'm just like a a normal-sized young woman. At the time... I thought I was the size of about three buses. I really, really did. And I was a normal, slim, size 10, 12 young woman. I really, really was. And when I look back at that and I think about myself now, I am still involved in that dysmorphia to a greater or lesser degree, depending on what day it is. Do you know what I mean? And it's not just about weight And it's not just about that. It's actually about body shape and body type. And, you know, when I was young, I was like athletics champion and I was head of the swimming team. Mainly because most of the other girls were were of European descent and were much smaller than me physically. Like, you know, like just weak, just not strong, basically. So I would run really fast and swim really fast and do all that stuff. But I was bigger than the other girls in my year, like taller. Like six million dollar man <laughs> or six million dollar woman, really. Do you know what I mean? It's like taller, faster, stronger. And that's what I was like when I was younger. But that translated to me as bigger, uglier, ungainly, and wrong. There's an innate message that you get that everything about you is wrong. So that became part of my internal dialogue. And it was something I didn't even recognise until I started therapy, was that I used to walk around, like literally calling myself names, saying stuff to myself. But I didn't realise I was doing it, Elizabeth. That's what's so insidious about the whole thing. I didn't realise I was doing it. I didn't realise I'd internalised all that stuff. Because you either fight, which I did used to do as well, But that doesn't stop it going in. That doesn't stop it sinking in. That doesn't stop the horrible names calling and the assumptions and the other things that go hand in hand from soaking into your very soul. So the dysmorphia is a kind of heart dysmorphia. It became an inability to love myself and it became an inability to actually see myself 
completely and fully. That's so profound. It's a very deep thing. And I think that it's so important that it's spoken about because, you know, that so many black women still won't even have their natural hair. There's a, there's a big movement about it. And obviously loads of young girls have these beautiful hairdos and black women all over the world, people, women of colour all over the world are embracing their natural hair. Even that in itself is a massive deal, you know, because it's like when you're told repeatedly that everything about you is wrong or you know you're very pretty for a black girl or you're this for a black girl or this for a black girl comes after everything you're kind of constantly reaching to have that like little suffix dropped and you talk there about therapy having made you aware of Mm. that do you think you are beyond that feeling now have you evolved out of that feeling or does it still come back to taunt you it definitely still comes back I'm a million times better than I was because I've had so much help and so much support. And, you know, I was given tools to change the internal tape in my head. So the way I spoke about myself to myself and to other people, the way I felt in a room, the way, you know, and part of this, this is also just being 58. You know, there's something brilliant about being 58 because, you know, I finally I'm like, yes, that's my seat at the table. Thank you very much. And I'll have the other one next to it as well. Do you know what I mean? (laughs) I know that I belong in the room and at the table and on the telly and, you know, wherever else I choose to be. But it's been a really long, hard tussle to get to this place and I still have therapy and that you know, these things do still come up because I don't think you're ever really well from very serious addiction, which an eating disorder is. You know, you you have to take it one day at a time like any other addiction and you have to make sure that you're doing the things that keep you healthy. You know, exercising. Exercising is key to me because it connects my heart, mind and body and spirit. That's what you want. You, You need all those things to be talking to each other because if they're not talking to each other, then you get fractured. When I say you, I mean me. (laughs) I get fractured and that's when problems occur. Do you know what I mean? During those three years when I was anorexic, it's interesting that we talk about it. And it's interesting what I just said about it, because what happens is I get really flippant about Mm. it because actually it was quite a painful time in a way because I was starving myself and I could finally wear clothes I wanted to wear. So yippee for that, whatever. But the rest of the world was telling me that I was finally acceptable. The rest of the world, I was literally didn't eat. And the rest of the world was going, my God, you look amazing. You've never looked so good. You look so incredible. But I didn't eat at all. I was just completely buzzing out in this weird state that you get into when you don't eat anything at all and but the rest of the world finally went oh you look fantastic and that flippancy I imagine is a coping mechanism in and of itself yes definitely 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 like as I was saying it to I was thinking why am I being like this and then I realized that it's how I defend myself about it because it was actually awful and I was quite desperate because I didn't eat. I mean, I can't express what it's like to not eat really for three years. I would eat the odd bit of fish. You know, it just wasn't okay. And I wasn't mentally okay. And I wasn't physically okay or spiritually okay. And I just kept moving as fast as I possibly could. Because, you know, a fasting target's harder to catch, isn't it? So it felt like if I kept moving, it would all be all right. And I'd still be able to wear this dress 
that I wanted to wear and nobody would really notice. And in the end, I just had to stop and fall over because it's not sustainable. And I went back into therapy and got the help I needed and I sort of landed back in my body again because I just left my body for about three years. And how old were you? That was a midlife crisis. I was like 43, something like that. I think that shows just how vigilant people who live with eating disorders have to continue to be throughout their lives, that something you had experienced in your 20s could come back with such viciousness in your 40s, I think is a really important thing for everyone to hear. I do too. And, And I think the thing about that end of eating disorders as well is that the world sees it as acceptable. It is important that I talk about it and it is important that other people hear it. And I think what's also important is that the world sees it as, oh, that you look lovely. It's like I'm not, I was starving. Yeah. And also, even now, there's this really strong part of me that wants to say to you, you look amazing as you are. I love you exactly as you are. And I know that that can be helpful on a really superficial level, but Mm. ultimately an eating disorder goes so much deeper than that and is a mental health condition. And so my saying that actually feeds into this narrative that appearance is more important than it should be. But I do love you exactly as you are. And also that appearance and beauty is one thing, is an immutable mass. And in fact... Everybody has beauty of their own to transmit and to share and to revel in and to enjoy. And that's what we should be teaching our young people. And that's what I hope young people are learning is that we all have our own way to be beautiful and our own way to find our beauty. And it doesn't have to fit into any shape that anybody else tells you about. And I don't just mean physical shape. I mean, emotional, spiritual shapes. And those are just as important as your physical shape. Are you very aware now, because I know that you're going to laugh when I say this about you, you are something of a role model. (laughs) Um, But are you aware of putting positivity out there? Because I'm very aware of not talking about weight or how I feel about my body to other particularly impressionable women. I think it's a sort of feminist service not to do that. Are you very conscious of that? I am conscious of it, but I also am conscious of telling the truth as well. So I feel like I could not ever talk about how I feel about my body or that I, you know, struggled with my weight. And, you know, we've both got a Peloton bike. I exercise every day, well, five days a week, and it makes me feel... I love a Peloton bike. But also it's just a thing for my mental health as well, just to be fitter and stronger and I am quite fit actually do you know what I mean I do like a high intensity no you you are really fit do you know what I mean I love to exercise and I, I just think it's about connecting with my body so I think it's really fine to talk about the times where you don't feel confident or you think you're meant to be slimmer or bigger or whatever it is some people are underweight and they think they need to put weight on so you know whatever it is I think we're allowed to talk about feeling wobbly you know there's also an I think a danger with taking the stance that we need to just stay positive all the time where people then don't feel able to say I don't feel good and I don't feel right and I feel like shit and totally agree 
Positive psychology has been really beneficial in so many ways, but one of the ways where I think it can be harmful is that sense that we are only allowed to experience good vibes. Like it's good vibes only from the moment you wake up to the moment you write your gratitude journal at the end of the night. And that's so admirable, but the reality is we don't always feel like that every single day. And you're so right that there should be a safe space to talk about it. And you also said something really profound then about connecting with your body through exercise. And that's been incredibly meaningful for me as well, because as a writer, primarily, I spend a lot of time in my head and (laughs) just on a constant anxious narrative loop about (laughs) life. And so to do some physical exercise, and it's something I only really found in my 30s, but it really helps reconnect with my physical self in a way that's tremendously important to my mental health. Yeah, and it reminds me to be grateful for my body and to stop giving my body such a hard time. My body does me very well, thank you. Do you know what I mean? And And it's strong and it's put up with a lot. And it's certainly put up with a lot of emotional attacks from me and it's still going strong do you know what I mean I've got a bad knee my hip's a bit dicky I am 58 so there's stuff going on you know that I'm gonna get sorted you're 58 but you look 22 and also <laughs> I know this t- I know this has a limited amount of impact because we've been talking about something much deeper than this mm. but I love your body and I hope that doesn't sound weird no it but doesn't. I really do I-, I always look at you and think oh my gosh she looks fantastic and and also unique and you're kind of bold enough to wear all these fantastic prints on oh, screen. I love all and I'm like, I just wish I could be more Andy. I love, like, honestly, I, like, that's how you come across to other people. I, well, and that is also my truth. There are many truths. Yes. You know what I mean? There just isn't one truth. That's the thing, you see. And I think also, you know, people feel that you get locked into being allowed to have one vision of yourself and I have many you know I have many visions of myself some of them are healthy there's a couple that aren't so healthy and when they're not I talk about them I could talk to my therapist and I deal with it and then I pass through it and I move on but I have to acknowledge that they're there because if I don't acknowledge that they're there that's when it becomes the sort of monkey on my back and that's what I can't have I can't have the monkey on my back Elizabeth yeah you can't not acknowledge it Mm. and also the other thing to be careful of is feeling shame for it because actually as you say we're all multifaceted we're capable of being a bitch one day and then an angel the next and that's okay and and for me sometimes that's all in the space of an hour (laughs) (laughs) it's like about 20 minutes ago you think god I was really vile just now I better go and apologize I have never known you to be vile, ever. Um, Let's get on to your final failure, which made me laugh so much because (laughs) I think this is a lesson for both of us. The final failure is to achieve this work-life balance I hear so much about. I just don't know how you do it. I don't understand. I was talking to Makita because Makita said to me this morning, so what are your failures? And I went through them. She's like, oh, mummy. And then I said the work-life balance. She just started laughing. And I said, it's true, though. I have either in my life just worked so much. Like when I was a single parent, I had about four jobs. You know, I worked as a receptionist at one of the Virgin Record things. And I worked at weekends at the Sweetie Shop on the corner and I was doing volunteer work and I had another job at the community centre so I just did all these different jobs all the time I was always doing something when were you a single mum Andy? Uh, and, until, like until Makita was 10 I had her when I was 20 oh my god! I had her when I was 20 years old so your entire 20s a decade that a lot of listeners find really really difficult because they're working out who they are yes. your entire 20s were spent sort of working four jobs and raising Makita on your own essentially wow. essentially sort of doing loads of different jobs all the time and just trying to you know make sure we you know we had some food on the table and just trying to like 
get things done and, you know, making a bit of music and doing a bit of this and working at the lighthouse. And then I'd get another job somewhere else. I did a bit of food at Psalm Studios for about five minutes. And, you know, just anything, just like constantly moving. I've never been able to go, right, I'm going to go and do a job in an office. And because I'm just not built like that. My brain doesn't work like that. I'm not very good. I'm really bad with authority. I'm really, and this must come as a huge shock to everybody. I'm not very good at like having a boss. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I just think, well, don't tell me what to do. Shut up. Stop talking to me. I don't, I'm not interested in the other people telling me what to do. <laughs> I have a real thing also about men telling me what to do. This is a bit of a digression, but it's because my dad was a real bully. He constantly was telling me what to do. Obviously, he was my father, but he was always telling me I couldn't do things that my brother was allowed to do because he was a boy and it used to make me absolutely incandescent with rage as a child, which is also why I'm called Andy, apparently, because my name is Andrea and my mum told me, I'd forgotten about this the other day, that when I was about 10, my dad had said another thing I wasn't allowed to do because I was a girl and I said, well, then I'm no longer a girl and made everybody call me Andy in an attempt to become a boy so that I could do what I liked. It didn't work, obviously. <laughs> just, I just changed my name. Do you, do you think, serious question, do you think if you'd been born now, because there's so much language readily available now, you would have asked to change your pronouns or to actually be known as a boy? Or do you think it was just a phase of fluidity? No, it wasn't. I didn't even give a shit about being a boy or a girl. I just wanted to do what I wanted to do. Do you know what I mean? I yeah. just <laughs> I just wanted to go out, Elizabeth. I if it had meant that I could go out, then I probably would have done, yes. But, but yeah. only as a ruse to get okay. my own way, not because I necessarily felt any sort of gender fluidity. Although I have to say that growing up at the time that I grew up, we were far more open. I feel like we spent most of our lives trying to divest ourselves of labels. Like, you know, men, women, boys, girls, what a man was supposed to be, what women were supposed to be, what girls were meant to be and what boys... You know, we really didn't give a shit what we wore, who wore what, when they wore it. Boys... My brother used to wear all my skirts and my used to steal my clothes all the time. He used to wear wedding dresses on stage and the whole band used to... We just used to wear each other's clothes. We used to do everything. But it just didn't have a name. You know, now people are quite keen on a label, I find. And I find it a little tiring, I have to say. God bless everyone. Please live your life and be happy in whatever shape, form or way that gives you joy and peace and light. I just don't know why I've got to keep talking about it all the time. Really I know, I, we've chatted about it before. We know we've chatted about it before. Is about, that really a bad no, it's not. No, I think what you're saying is we live in a non-binary age, an increasingly gender fluid age. And, yeah. and thank goodness for that. Yeah. But that also coexists with a tribalism. And that's what's weird. Also, is the... it's not a new idea. It's not a new idea. I don't understand why everybody thinks it's a new idea. I'm like, why do you think that's new? It's like Harry Styles wearing a pink dress. Go for it, Harry. I love it. Most of the boys I knew used to wear dresses all the time. I don't understand why you think it's such a big deal. It's great. You look good. Quite nice legs. Go for it, kid. I love it. But do you know what I think's different? What's different? Is that I think... The youth of today, she said, sat and doing 85. <laughs> they are brave enough to take on people like your dad yes. and to say, actually, it's important to me yeah. that you respect my choices. Yeah. And that's something I, d- I don't think I would ever have uh, done. Well, and we did, you see, because we were punks. Okay, you're much cooler than I I was so unrebellious. Oh, I was quite a sort of handful. <laughs> 
maybe what it is is, is like it's enabling people who aren't naturally yeah. rebels to take a bit of that. Do you know what I to think? To take a bit of that ownership. I think themselves. anything that gives people a chance to find people like them so that they don't feel on their own is a good thing. Because there's yes. nothing worse than isolation. Isolation is horrible, and I don't want anyone to ever feel that way. But yeah. I, what I find tricky is people explaining things to me that I already know because I'm 50 <laughs> fucking eight, all right? I'm not. I'm not brand new, okay? If that's all it is, I'm just like, mate, it's great. Just get on with it. I don't understand why you're yeah. explaining all this stuff to me. But that is the nature of teenagers and young people. That's what we do. We're, you yes. know, the hubris of youth, you know. You sort of, you think everybody older than you has not really experienced anything. So, you know, yeah. and I remember being a sort of snotty, annoying teenager. It's just what you're meant to do. It's part of life, isn't it? Let's leave that there. Let's go back to the work-life balance. <laughs> Let's go. Straw a line under that. Straw a line under that. Um, yeah. The work-life balance thing. I joke about my diary, but then I think of yours. And you are one of the hardest working people that I know. And I think so often because you are such a natural on screen that that can sometimes be ignored. The years and years yeah. of hard graft that have gone into yeah. this, plus the hard graft that you continue to do that people don't see behind the scenes. Yeah, you don't just wake up being able to do that stuff. Do you know what I mean? No. And do you think you've had to work harder because of that sense that your face didn't fit? You know what happened? Because so I was doing quite a lot of broadcast, you know, a bit here, a bit here, and it was all very quite piecemeal. And I just sort of wandered away from it because we couldn't get anything made that we wanted to get made. Commissioners weren't interested, channels weren't interested in anything. We did a really brilliant thing for a channel, I won't say who, years ago, and they, you know, the feedback was it was too black. You know, we did this sort of culture, culture. The feedback was it it was was too black, black, so they couldn't commission it. So, you know, I got very bored of having those conversations again and again and again. And I also got very bored of being called in by channels and to tell me that I was brilliant and clever and exciting and interesting. And why didn't I give them some ideas of things I want to do and then never commissioning anything? So I just got bored of it and started to really focus on cooking, actually. You know, start over the restaurant, over the pub with my friend, Kelly. Well, we had several pubs actually and Kelly still works with me now she's like my other arm if I didn't have Kelly I would fall apart completely I just got fed up of it I didn't it wasn't even a conscious decision I just walked away from broadcasting because I got bored of not being able to do anything or sort of being pigeonholed all the time or being told that you know you could do this or constantly losing out to somebody in my opinion less able to do the job because of yeah uh, physical attributes shall we say And then broadcasting came to find me in one of the pubs and said, oh, please come and do this stuff. So I was like, hmm, maybe. And then I started doing a little bit more food broadcasting. And then Nana and I did a cooking show together, actually. And then I started doing a little bit here and a little bit there and a little bit more. And then I suddenly got this great British menu gig. I did a bit of Saturday Kitchen and I suddenly got this great British menu gig. Seemingly out of nowhere. It felt like out of nowhere, but really it was like out of... 20 years of broadcasting experience and everything else, I suppose. Do you have the freelancer's curse of yes. thinking, if I say no to this, I'm never going to work yes. again? Yes, yes. And, and also that everything is temporary. Everything yes. feels temporary all the time. And I, and I think in some ways, I don't say yes to everything anymore, but I do 
either work all the time or, as I said to Mikita, I feel like I'm just like bumming around. I'm not very good at lying down and doing nothing I'm, for I'm very long. I'm exactly the I same. I just start getting really twitchy and I start getting a little bit like, oh, I should be doing something. Like when we got stuck in Antigua, I know, what a nightmare, I started writing a book and everybody yeah. was like, what are you, aren't you on holiday? <laughs> well, I was, that was for four weeks, but if I'm going to be here for three months, I've got to do something. So I started writing a book and I got so into it, you know, and I got a routine. I would get up at six and I'd go, I found a gym there and I'd go and do an outside workout and then come home, go shopping, write for a couple of hours, do a new recipe, take some pictures, and then I'd be able to chill out. But I'd have to have done all of that in the first half of the day. Otherwise, I wouldn't be able to relax in the second half of the day. You got stuck in Antigua because of lockdown, Yes, yes. Right? We, we, yeah, yeah. Okay. we got on a plane and the travel advice was that you could travel. And when we got off the plane, they went, no one's going anywhere. And we were like, oh, no. But it was luckily, it went that way round. And we, so we were just there and it was absolutely incredible. I'd never spent that much time there either, three months in a row like that. So that was incredible. But I do wish I could learn how to, this thing, you know, when people just do nothing. I don't really understand doing nothing. I, I well, I can't do nothing, but I can watch a lot of reality TV. Oh and I think God, that's yeah. my saving grace. <laughs> Me too. Really shit telly is, yes. is, is the backbone of my relaxing time. And I love you and Makita on Gogglebox, by the way. Just be <laughs> you. And Scout obviously makes an appearance on and that. Scout, Scout's on Gogglebox. No, I do. I watch a lot of terrible TV, but I watch a lot of weird things that with people with superpowers. I like all Superman films, all Batman. I like any superhero film. I am there. Even terrible series like Charmed. I watched all of Charmed. There's a new Superman series on Makita. Went, oh, I bet you get bet you get that all queued up, aren't you? I was like, you betcha. You betcha. I can hardly wait for a little time on my own with nobody to judge me and I'll watch Smallville. Do you know what I mean? That's, that's my idea um, of relaxing. Well, my darling Andy Oliver, you are my superhero. You have so many magical powers. Uh, I suppose I want to draw this to a close by asking you what you think failure has taught you. I think failure has taught me to love, actually, <gasps> because I think vulnerability gives you insight into the heart of life, the stuff of life that really matters, vulnerability gives you like a, a laser beam direct route into the heart of sadness and fragility. And I think that all of the things that I feel that have been failures have given me a direct route to my own humanity, which helps me love people. Don't make me cry a third time. I mean, is that just off the top of your head? Are you reading that from a Pinterest no. board quote? No. That was phenomenal. Do you want to host this podcast next? This can, this can be like your 56th job. I know, I've got a bit of spare time, obviously. I'm, well, I've got, well, I'll get the soup finished. I'll just come over and do that. Amazing. No, but do you know what I mean, though? Yes, I do know what yeah. you mean, but you put it more brilliantly than anyone else could have done. That is so beautiful. I cannot thank you enough for being you and for coming on How to Fail. I'm so honoured that you asked me, Elizabeth, honestly. I hope that I had anything to say of any <laughs> substance. I just feel a bit like, what the fuck am I talking about? The last one I heard, it was a Chimamanda being so poetic <laughs> and profound. I'm like, oh my God, I'm just talking about weird shit again. Talking about Smallville. Talking no. About <laughs> 
Smallville. Chimamanda, we cut out where she was talking about Smallville, okay? (laughs) (laughs) You are a wonder. Thank you, honey. I love you. Love you too. If you enjoyed this episode of How to Fail with Elizabeth Day, I would so appreciate it if you could rate, review and subscribe. Apparently, it helps other people know that we exist.